You may question the wisdom of starting stewardship on the Sunday after Easter, or on Earth Sunday for that matter. But here we are. The English poet Philip Larkin once wrote, to put one brick upon another, add a third and then a fourth, leaves no time to wonder whether what you do has any worth. But to sit with bricks around you while the winds of heaven ball, weighing what you should or can do, leaves no doubt of it at all. Sunday after Sunday, we come to this sanctuary to sit with bricks around us while the winds of heaven ball, weighing what we should or can do, leaving us with no doubt that our lives have tremendous worth and tremendous impact. And yet I often wonder whether we truly comprehend the power that we have to build and rebuild the world. Our bricks, the bricks on our campus, were handmade in Williamsburg style by Locker and Company of Glasgow, Virginia, and laid in a Flemish bond pattern, which is one of the strongest and most lasting ways to lay bricks. Yet even the best laid bricks built on the strongest foundations can erode and crumble when exposed to the elements. Time and pressure are all it takes to damage any structure. The bricks on our altar this morning are a result of what time and pressure have done to the buildings on our campus that were constructed by our founders. Now, I'm well aware that a church is not a building. Growing up as a Methodist, we regularly sang this fun hymn, I am the church, you are the church. Some of you may remember it from Sunday school. It has a wonderful verse. The church is not a building. The church is not a steeple. The church is not a resting place. The church is a people. Now, if you want to sleep this morning, that's okay. It can be a resting place for some. And yet, even though the church is not a building, it is a sacred ground. It's sacred because it's the place where we come to encounter God, to pray, to sing, to worship, to learn, to grow, to change, to celebrate births and weddings, to grieve losses and deaths, to connect with people, build relationships, to care for each other, to combine our forces together to love our neighbors, to meet the needs of our community, to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. So over time, the buildings and the sanctuary and its bricks become more than just bricks. They become a metaphor and a symbol for the church and its people and the work that we've done together over time. In Genesis 31, Jacob was on the run from his father-in-law Laban. He'd grow weary of Laban tricking him into working extra years to earn his daughter's hands in marriage. So Jacob split with Laban's daughters and a bunch of his livestock. But Laban went after him. And when he caught up to Jacob, instead of trying to kill him, Laban asked Jacob to make a covenant with him. Laban would allow Jacob to keep his daughters and the livestock he'd taken so long as Jacob always promised to take care of them and was a good steward of what he'd been given. Jacob agreed, and to enact this covenant, they gathered stones, they placed them one on top of each other and called it a galid, or Ramoth Gilead in Hebrew, which means a heap of witness, 
a pile of testimony. From that day on, this heap of stones would be a witness testifying to the covenant and would stand as a sign and symbol of the vows that Laban and Jacob had made. Today, our bricks, many of which have crumbled and fallen off of our building, have been constructed before us as a heap of witness to remind us that in this season of stewardship, we have made a covenant with God and to each other to be faithful stewards of our lives and of this world and to nurture this church as a community of faith and as an instrument for reconciliation in the world by worship, by Christian education, by the dedication of our personal and material resources as well. These words straight from our church's covenant contain the vows that we made to each other when we joined this church, which we reaffirm every time someone becomes a new member. We have no requirements of creed, doctrine, dogma, denomination, even faith here at Myers Park Baptist Church. All we have is our covenant. It is what unites us together, describes our identity, and communicates our responsibility to one another and to God as people on a journey together. It's the most sacred thing we share, more sacred than our buildings and our grounds, our music and our worship. It is what calls us to be good stewards of our lives and our church and our world. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be a good steward? My advisor at Duke, Stanley Hauerwas, was famous for being one of the world's leading theologians and having a very salty mouth. He could make a sailor blush and claim that it was the results of being raised by bricklayers. His grandfather, father, and his five brothers were all bricklayers. And Hauerwas often said to us as students, the secret of bricklaying rests in how you spread the mud. You have to cut the mud off the board with your trowel just right so that when you spread the mud, you do not get it on the face of the brick you just laid. The mud then must be frogged in a manner that essentially lets the brick lay itself. Frogging involves making a trench in the mud so that when the brick is laid, the mud pulls the brick level down to the line. Good brick layers, he would tell us, seldom ever touch the brick with their trowel. They lay the brick by the feel of their hand. It's very complex work and requires the labor of expert craftsmen. As an ethicist, Hauerwas used this metaphor as he came to see that learning how to love God and neighbor to be good stewards was similar to the training required to become a bricklayer. The point, of course, is that it doesn't happen overnight. In his memoir, Stone Mad, the stonecutter Seamus Murphy reflects on his training with the observation that life is change, which leads bricklayers to use their past as a yardstick to examine the future. They take pride in the past because they're part of a tradition, and people who are shaped by tradition often work to conserve the modes of life they've learned are needed to achieve the ends to which their craft is dedicated. But in the book, Murphy fears that the future holds little for people like him, Concrete has replaced stone in our world, which means a craft like stone cutting, which requires apprentices to be trained over years in the diverse skills necessary to deal with the unanticipated challenges of the craft cannot be sustained. And so Murphy observes, with hammer and mallet and chisel, we shaped and fashioned rough boulders. We often cursed our material and we spoke to it kindly. We have come to terms with it. And it has a way of dictating to us, which is when the struggle begins. 
We try to impose ourselves on the material, but we know our material well, and we respect it. We may take suggestions from it, and when we do, our work is better for it. Perhaps the kind of discipline and dedication required to learn a craft like bricklaying is the same needed to become the good stewards that our covenant calls us to be. Are we up for that? No one likes sermons on stewardship. Especially the Sunday after Easter, we cringe when we hear that the dreaded topic is on the horizon. And pastors don't like to preach on it any more than congregation members want to hear about it. It's the one thing everyone can agree on to hate. And I think, you know, over the years I've come to realize there are very good reasons for our adverse reaction. People ask us for money all the time. Every day, another letter comes in the mail from our alma mater or one of the many nonprofit organizations that we've supported in the past, asking us to make another donation. With so many good causes in our community, making a tremendous impact, how do we decide who to give to and how much to give? Meanwhile, every three months or so, the local public radio station pauses their programming again to invite us to become sustaining members. Then, when it comes to religion, our problems with stewardship are as old as the Protestant Reformation itself, which started over the selling of indulgences. Over the years, we've been turned off by prosperity gospel preachers and televangelists begging us for contributions with the promise that giving them money will make us richer and help us find favor with God. The overwhelming number of requests we receive and the history of theological malpractice in the church's way of asking for money has left us sickened or at best suspicious about the topic of stewardship. Recently, I've fallen in love with a fabulous memoir, Red Lip Theology, by womanist theologian Candace Marie Benbow. And her subtitle of this amazing book is For Church Girls Who Consider Tithing to the Beauty Supply Store When Sunday Morning is Not Enough. Benbow says that Red Lip Theology, which she has created, is about the relationship between her Bible and her Sephora Beauty Insider card and how that changed her life. It's a story of freedom, hard fought and even harder won, she says. But as I read Benbow's powerful narrative, I found it to be a humbling testimony to the fact that the church has failed to provide the kind of love and acceptance for the full humanity of people. And this has led many people to go out and find alternative liturgies, alternative churches even, like makeup rituals and Sephora to supplement for the affirmation that the church should be providing in their lives. Our failure is ancient and old. It stems from our inability to agree with the God who looked over everything that was created and said, it is good. Not to mention we have those two accounts of creation in Genesis. In the first, God gave humanity dominion over all the creatures of the earth. And in the second, God gave humans the job of being caretakers and stewards of the earth. So stewardship is our first spiritual calling, the deepest spiritual thing we've ever been called to do, the first thing God gave to human beings, which means it's our primary occupation. Before anything and everything else, we're called to be stewards of the earth, its creatures, its resources. However, throughout history, 
we turned dominion into domination and severely neglected our calling as stewards, tragically leading to an environmental catastrophe that we have now. All the incredible gifts of creation that God has given us, if we are honest about it, are now eroding. Glaciers are eroding at an alarming pace, threatening global sea level rise. Democracy is eroding with fascism and authoritarianism on the rise around the world. Organized religion and the church in America are eroding at a rapid pace. Community and relationships are eroding due to the internets and social media and a thousand other factors. All the erosion that we face today in our lives and our world means that the primary work of those who want to be good stewards is no longer simply about keeping or taking care of what God has given us. It is now about rebuilding, repairing, restoring, renewing what God has given us. It is the work of resurrection. And this is where the example of Nehemiah becomes critical for us. Nehemiah was just minding his business, enjoying his life as a cupbearer to the king of Persia when he heard that the gates of his city, Jerusalem, which was laid to waste by the Babylonians and Assyrians, had now been destroyed by fire. The news that the graves of his ancestors were being desecrated and his beloved homeland was burning, weighed heavily on him, so heavily that the king of Persia could see his grief as he served him. When the king inquired about it, Nehemiah asked if he could be sent back to the city to rebuild. And upon arriving, Nehemiah took a nighttime reconnaissance mission on the back of an animal to see the walls. And he could see that they were crumbling and eroding. The bricks and stones lying on the ground in different places were so numerous, he had to dismount his horse and continue by foot. Nehemiah's grief over the city was so tremendous but his determination to rebuild was even stronger. And so Nehemiah rose the next morning and went to the people living in and around the decimated city and said, friends, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so we may not ever suffer disgrace. And amazingly, the people responded by shouting, let's start building. And committed themselves, it says in the scripture, to the common good. It's easy to admire Nehemiah's leadership here. It's an inspiring witness of what stewardship looks like. But we cannot forget or read over it quickly that Nehemiah was immediately and consistently opposed by local elite who had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. They did not respect Nehemiah or appreciate him meddling in their affairs or messing with their power. Who did this outsider from Persia think he was coming into their territory, stirring up the people, talking about rebuilding things? They did not want to rebuild. The mocking words here of Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem about Nehemiah and the people are a stark reminder to us that any efforts to rebuild something important from the environment to democracy to the church will always, always face opposition. And there was another reason the local elite in Jerusalem opposed Nehemiah, one that is hidden in the text, one that scholars are just now beginning to reckon with, and that is that Nehemiah was a eunuch. The practice of employing eunuchs in the royal court is as old as the Sumerian dynasty. 
And historically, eunuchs provided a wide variety of functions in many ancient cultures, such as domestic work, clandestine operations. They also served as singers, concubines, religious specialists, soldiers, royal guards, government officials, and guardians of women and harems. The most famous modern representation is the bald eunuch Varus, who sat on the king's small council in Game of Thrones. Actually, quite a, a uh, accurate modern depiction. Yet even though eunuchs held incredibly important roles in most ancient civilizations in Israel, they were considered unclean. Unclean Gentiles, never permitted to enter the community to worship in the temple. Eunuchs were specifically excluded from the community in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. However, there is counter-testimony. Isaiah prophesied that there would come a time when God would welcome eunuchs into the community and give them a name better than even the sons and daughters of Israel. And in Acts 8, that's exactly what happened when Philip, that apostle, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to invite the Ethiopian eunuch to be baptized and fully included into the family of God. Now, why would God choose someone like Nehemiah, who was excluded from Israel and was considered sexually unclean and unfit to enter the temple, to go back and be the one to lead the people to rebuild? It seems counterintuitive. Well, whenever God rebuilds something, God expands the boundaries of community. God is always at work, widening the circle expanding the walls, pushing the boundaries further out so that they can include more people, those who were not previously included. The primary way God rebuilds is by rewriting and reconstituting the definition of who's in and who's out of the community. In fact, God is so committed to the ever-expanding nature of an inclusive community that God chooses the very people, this happens over and over again in Scripture, chooses the very people on the margins who were excluded by the community to become the leaders that galvanize everyone to come together and rebuild. God took Nehemiah from the realm of obscurity and called him to become the one who would help rebuild the community that he had been excluded and rejected from. I heard a prophet from Nazareth once say, the last shall be first, and the least shall be the greatest. Our church has become a place where the people who were once marginalized and rejected in America and in most communities of faith have become its leaders. Over our history, we have transformed from a place where women could only serve in certain roles to a community where women are now empowered to hold the highest levels of leadership. We have transformed from a place where LGBTQ people were ignored or simply just tolerated to a community where LGBTQ people now lead our deacons and our staff. We have transformed from a place where black people were intentionally excluded to a community where black people are now our clergy and our highest elected leaders. People who were treated like Nehemiah in our past have now become our leaders. Can you imagine what the future holds for us if we can continue to expand this inclusive community? If we can be good stewards of what we have by supporting these new leaders in their efforts to rebuild the church and the world, the possibilities 
are endless. Henry Nouwen once said that stewardship is not about saying, please could you help us out because it's been hard lately. Rather, it is declaring, we have a vision that is amazing and exciting, and we are inviting you to invest yourself through the resources that God has given you, your energy, time, and money, in this work to which God has called us. Even a seemingly small act of generosity can grow into something far beyond what we could ever ask for or imagine. The creation of a community of love in this world, because wherever love grows, Nowen says, it is stronger than death. So when we give ourselves and our money to planting and nurturing, to building and rebuilding love here on earth, our efforts reach far beyond our own lives. When we give our resources for the creation of a community of love, we help God build and rebuild the kingdom. I was in an event yesterday. I heard a leader say, anyone can tear down, but it takes someone truly special to build. And it takes one even more special than that to rebuild. Over the course of our history, this church has been incredibly fortunate to have great builders, founders, charter members, stakeholders, deacons, leaders who gave their resources and their time to build a great church. The question now is, are we simply a church who once had great builders or will we be a church who has great rebuilders as well. Do we have people whose consciences will be awakened like Nehemiah's at the sight of erosion and commit ourselves to rebuilding the church and the community and the world? To be very frank with you and to get vulnerable for a moment, even though I am an employee of the church who is paid by the congregation, I still pledge and give not just extra time or talent or energy above and beyond 40 hours. I also give my financial resources to support the church. I do not say this to brag. I should be giving more, and I can be giving more, and I'll be increasing my gift this year as we've been called to as a church. I only share this to show how deeply I believe in the mission and vision of this church and in you, the people. I believe in this church so deeply that as your senior minister, I invest a portion of the money you pay me back into the organization to support our work together. I don't give because I think God will bless me. I don't give because I think that I will become rich. I give because I believe it is my responsibility spiritually to be a good steward and because I believe in our community and what it means in the lives of so many people in our world. We can try to ignore the bricks on the altar this morning, but I hear them speaking to me. They are witnessing and testifying to me. And Jesus said that if the people remain silent, the very stones will cry out. Well, the stones are crying out to me this morning, and they are calling me to rebuild, to invest my time and energy and my resources for the rebuilding of the church, for the rebuilding of our community, our democracy, and our environment. Can you hear them this morning? They're calling me to be bold, to dig down, to dig deep. They are calling me to put my money where my faith is and to put my money where my hope is, to be a good steward of what I've been given. They're saying that to those who are given much, much is required. Can you hear them this morning? 
They are saying to me, to put one brick upon another and then add a third and a fourth leaves no time to wonder whether what you do has any worth but to sit with bricks around you while the winds of heaven ball, weighing what you should and can do leaves no doubt at all. I hope these bricks leave no doubt for you today. They're crying out to me and they're saying, come, like Nehemiah, come, let us rebuild our church, our democracy, our earth, our world. The time is now. We cannot wait. Can you hear them? These bricks are speaking and I wonder, what are they saying to you? Amen.